Gentlemen and all the other types of people out there, why do I start with ladies and gentlemen it is some sort of a blast from the past that I do. It's not really accurate to anything in this time of year, but I'm not going to edit it out because I want you to know how imperfect I am, and I'm working on it so hard. Via staying at home, the ultimate heroic thing to do in this time of stay-at-home orders, emergency orders, all that good stuff. Look, this is not a solo episode today. In fact, I'm redoing the intro. If you if you have listened to this again after listening to uh, the episode as soon as it came out a couple days ago, this is going to be a completely different intro because I screwed up too many things there. I was going from memory. You know, in my memory, it ain't so hot. Especially now, I have the memory of like a dog. I just remember the last thing I did, and then I eat a bone. So, I'm lucky I have bone access. Oh, hi. Welcome to Nick Flanagan Weekly. I'm Nick, your host. Sometimes I go on solo montages verbally, and other times I have guests, and we do some uh, discussion. Today's guest is none other than Simone Schmidt. Simone Schmidt, who is a very talented singer and songwriter with uh, uh, their, their solo project Fiverr, as well as $100 way back when, which was a band in the highest order, another band. So very prolific, all very different sounding, although especially with Fiverr and $100, there's a lot of country going on. And if you take a look at the Fiverr Instagram or uh, Fiverr, which is Simone's Twitter account, you'll see a deep appreciation for obscure music, uh, including lots of country stuff, but they're very well-versed musically, as well as social politics. And Simone has quite a few stances on politics that I agree with, have learned from, and think are great. I think it's activism is very important. It's probably more important than ever. And we were talking about a letter that Simone composed about the Toronto um, municipal government, basically... Uh, allowing hotel rooms to be used uh, for homeless shelters um, and tons of people signed it and they did institute uh, the, the use of some hotels but guess what it wasn't enough it's called lip service watch out for it but it's still amazing that Simone was able to organize that there's a new EP from Fiverr it's called you want a country? And it's great. It sounds amazing. You'll get to hear Simone's wonderful voice. And if you listen to the interview, you'll hear their song, It's What It Is, at the back. The back, at the end of the episode. I am not able to podcast anymore. This is a pandemic. But I'm doing my best. Anyway... Here's my talk with Simone. Enjoy. 
how, so, so how do I do that? You're like a Zoom pro. Oh, like last night I went to a Zoom party and I was so kind of bored at it that I just explored the whole platform. And yeah, you can get a virtual background. You go down to, you know where it says stop video at the bottom left corner of the Zoom? Okay, so then there's a little arrow next to that. and then Virtual background. Virtual background. And then you have to like set it up where you're like, green screen or whatever and then you can upload any image from your computer you know simone this is part of why i knew it would be good to talk so (laughs) i could learn things there you go (laughs) how's it going Ah. Ah. (laughs) how are you i don't know man life is fucked but you know what I feel like really lucky because I have a home and uh, I have a, like a place to be where I, I don't know. It's a lot of people don't. Yeah, I know. I, I feel the same way. Last year. So for me to, you know, have a place to myself is a big deal. And what, I feel what, really fortunate for that. What did you say about uh, last year? It, oh, I was, I was house hopping. Like I was looking for a place in Toronto. And so I was like staying on people's couches or taking care of their their houses and their cats while they were away. Like yeah. I took care of 17 cats over the course of like many months. And uh, yeah, anyways. No, I did that same thing for about seven years. Yeah. Now I How live with it? my mom. Really? Yeah. How is it? Living with my mom? Yeah. Well, right now I'm not there. Because of, you know, she's not my age, which would be weird. But um, yeah, she, uh, it's fine. I mean, my dad uh, died a few years ago. So um, it's just, oh, thanks. And uh, it's always the most, it's always one of the most awkward exchanges, right? When you say someone died and then the other person says, I'm sorry, and we love it. But then also it just, nobody it feels fully comfortable. <laughs> I mean, I feel totally I mean, comfortable. Yeah, no, I mean, I do because it's yeah. like, I don't know, like uh, my my young nephew died like a few oh. years ago. I oh. think in those moments it's like, you know, it's like you recognize that the culture that we're in makes no room for death to feel like anything other than a devastating like vacuum that some people have to visit every once in a while when it's in proximity. But in fact, if we all just were like, Oh yeah, this is a reality of life is dying. Um, Mm -hmm. Then maybe we wouldn't be all fucked up. (laughs) Love is everywhere. Life is everywhere. Death is everywhere. You know, it's, uh, it's all one man. Yeah. Grief is the uh, inverse of, love right like when grief is a love that you can't express anymore yeah Uh, yeah that's probably the the most frustrating thing about it is it feels that way by the way my computer can't do backgrounds right now so i have to figure out it says i need a green screen which i actually do have at home so i may if if my lady friend allows (laughs) 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 just um yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, were you house hunting and or house hopping and thinking it was okay? Because you'd ask me 
how those seven years were. And I, it sort of vacillated between me being like, this is what I want. This is perfect. I'm a rolling stone. And uh, being like, who am I? Who's, you know, where is this? Who's the cat? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I was in a complex. <coughs> oh, also, I might have the virus. Just so you well, know. that's cool. So you've been <laughs> self-isolating then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I would kind of prefer not to talk about my personal feelings because they're very wrapped up in like uh, an ex uh, relationship experience that I don't, yeah. I don't really talk about my relationships ever publicly. So like, mm. I do talk to my friends about them, but well, I feel like- I will tell you this. I think my listenership is like 90% people who know me <laughs> and probably <laughs> who know you. So, I mean, I'm not saying you should talk about it. I'm just saying, um, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less interested in shit that the people don't want to talk about, but if it's general feelings, you know- I mean, the, the general feeling of like waking up in a new place all the time, without having to play a show because I'm a musician. So I'm actually quite used to like being in a new place every day or every two days. Um, but like I was in Toronto cause I was working on this like theater show last summer. So rather right. than going to kind of deal with like uh, domestic instability or something like that, I, uh, uh -huh. I ended up like having to be here and you grew up in Toronto like me yeah. and you know how weird it is here. Like, how it to be like 36 and like see the changes in Toronto and you know like feeling like it's t always telling you to go go home but you're like I am home <laughs> like yes. what like um and then just how there's like no none of the things that I love about Toronto even are like I feel like I have like some weird science fiction like VR glasses on where I see the old Toronto when I look around. But when I like actually look at it, I'm like, oh, this is unrecognizable. And so for me, it was really actually nice to be living in different parts of Toronto and like have to engage with them as like neighborhoods rather than just I had the exact just, like, same experience. Yeah. I had the exact same experience and I'm having it coming back too because that's that's so amazing um hearing that because it's just i was i remember i was staying in you know i grew up in this area of the annex and i lived in Dundas west but i wound up staying in like far parkdale or in uh um cabbage town area on the east side or further east than that you know and um it was it felt great being in those neighborhoods and that that was actually a grounding experience but this was you know, I moved away in 2015, 2016, and I moved near my parents again, uh, you know, before I, I moved away. And, and so it started to sort of reduce when things got really crazy in terms of things changing in, in Toronto, you know, so I noticed it the most when I came back. Yeah. But now everything's upended, potentially. I think that's yeah. why I wanted to talk to you so much is because, you know, I, I, um, I love the music. I love what you, you, you know, you do, but I feel like there's so many other things that we can cover because your music, uh, a lot, uh, you know, you've made conscious efforts to dig into your 
historical interests and, and uh, your political interests. And then also we grew up in the same city and we kind of had this fun, um, I can't really even, to, that Toronto toed, you know, that <laughs> you, you really hold in your 20s especially and then just becomes uh, even more awesome as you age. But it feels like the city doesn't even hold that attitude fully anymore. And yeah, it doesn't hold no it anymore. Attitude. Yeah. Because you just feel like totally decontextualized. Yeah, like snide record store employees. Like, there's less. Yeah. You know? Because, you know, I like, <laughs> I, I was like writing the other day and I was like, wow, every time I try to like write about where I live, I like tr end up writing like life is a carnival. <laughs> life is the canadian national exhibition yeah because it does feel like toronto has turned into a midway of sorts and yeah like the worst kind like, yeah and you're like a clown or you're a janitor or it's you're both <laughs> <laughs> it's turned into like uh you know the word arcade you know before they had video games like an arcade was just like an atrium or something like <laughs> a lobby with nothing in it <laughs> i didn't know that i don't know i just feel like you know, it's one of arcade is one of those words that it's like a recreation hall, but it's not. You need video games for it to be a good arcade. That's all I'm saying. And Toronto needs the video games. But of course, when Young Street was changed, all the arcades, the good ones, were taken away. Yeah, it's true. And it's it's really strange, like trying to be like, well, where are the places that we can actually hang out, or like, where can I go without feeling like. I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. Are you a homebody in general or do you just kind of like well, go I'm out a, and... I'm a depressive, so Aww. I definitely Aww. am a that's my, homebody. That's, I don't do... I'm sorry. I go, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I do spend a lot of time at home. I mean, mm -hmm. I also quit drinking seven years ago. Right. So yeah. That changes like my whole experience because like like I would go like jam with one of my bands in the basement of Paul's boutique but then they go and party at uh like Ronnie's and I just there's no point for me to go to Ronnie's like well that's uh that's, that's where you a, drink that's a fact that's <laughs> I've said that many times you know uh and I I drink but I don't <laughs> um, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, I, I stopped, that was actually a really cool thing about living in Los Angeles is that it did prepare me for, uh, what's happening now, which is like a lot of time at home. Um, also in a weird way, depression and anxiety are both heightened by this situation we're in, but also it feels familiar. And, um, I would imagine, you know, I think that a lot of depression does come with a feeling of lack of control. And um, a lot of the time we look outward at problems in the world and then sort of can go from macro to micro in a second and sort of attribute that to our, our, ourselves and some sort of lack of function in our own lives. And um, so we've been here before. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of the hardest times for that because between Canada's response to this, which is, like, kind of hard to figure out, you know, uh, like, I can't tell. I mean, obviously, if people don't know um, and if Americans are listening, 
our government is giving us apparently, you know, four months of a, a decent wage, which I'm, sh I don't know if you're in the same boat as me. You're like, Oh wow. This is like a more stable income, you know, than I will have had. We'll see if this works out. Or definite. I'm like, wow, $2,000. I was like, maybe I can like save up and buy a Les Paul. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, artists and musicians uh, and writers and, you know, fucking activists, you know, make so little money that uh, yeah. to, to, to have something like this, it, it is is so soothing but the question is what's happening right now in you know really vulnerable populations what's happening right now and you know in terms of care for indigenous people on outside of <laughs> covid yeah. now really exacerbated by that so. of course like every dynamic that exists has been amplified yeah. and my sense of like the federal $2,000 a month for the next four months, uh, like offer is that it is a way of trying to, um, stall any movement that would ask for like a, a permanent change. Right. So you have like this emergency response that feels generous, uh, to some people, but then, uh, and then you like shut down the need for a lot, like a lot of other, of a lot of the people who might otherwise agitate for like a general system change, right? Well, I, you know, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the thing is that my counter to that would be, we have no idea how long this is gonna last, you mm -hmm. know? And so their game plan might need to go longer and longer. Sure. And, you know, I, I, I don't think people in Canada are, uh, necessarily asking for something like $2,000 a month, but this is, remember our premier, Doug Ford of Ontario, the first thing he did when he came in was cancel, one of the first things was cancel a universal basic income program yeah. in Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah. And uh, people were saying that that program changed their lives. Yeah. So um, with that in mind, you know, with all of these lessons that, could be taken out of this, which are, I don't know about you, but this is the last way I wanted things that I believed in to be proven, you know, <laughs> like, or at least strong arguments to be made for them. I mean, like the US especially, I'm like watching uh, these numbers uh, obsessively, also in Canada too, but, but we have managed so far, whether it's through not testing. I think it's through not testing. Yeah, or, or, you know, keeping it down a little bit. And, you know, I, I think we really need to focus on what unfortunately um, people would call say bottom up economy, which is like, uh, and, and care. So yeah. it's like, if we had started this whole thing by testing, it all sounds shitty though, right? Like if we'd started this whole thing by testing the homeless population, well, that sounds weird. The rally, you know, but to bring people around who people know, like trusted yeah. people to come in and say, you know, we'll just be testing for this. And they're the first because they're the most vulnerable. And on another level, they're the people who, because they have no place, would also be the most vulnerable to un, un, unwa unintentionally, un, uh, unwantingly infecting each other and others, you know. I think like, so one of the demands that our mutual friend Zoe Dodd, Zoe Dodd. has like 
kept hammering, but like, I think that we probably later today, I'll try to like make a form letter so people can agitate and like write into the government. I mean, I wrote my counselor about it, which is the idea that hotels have to be open for homeless people to live in at this moment. Yes. Uh, because currently there have been a few beds added to the system because different programs have been shut down, but they don't actually allow social distancing. Um, mm -hmm. You just see these rooms that are crowded, right? With like cots that are placed like maybe four feet away from each other. Mm -hmm. Like all of us are complaining about having to go to the grocery store and get coughed on. And you just think about like the sheer terror of that experience. And then there's all the stigma around like who is homeless and like a lot of like not knowing who like the thousands and thousands of people are who are homeless and like they do happen to be like all kinds of people so like i mean when i proposed this hotel idea to like my friends people were like well who who's gonna staff and like police the homeless in the hotels and it's like i don't know like you think that everyone needs to be policed once they're given a home like you think that's you're worried about that cost. The point is like, we're supposed to be flattening the curve. And yeah. in fact, um, people just need a place to live and they've always needed a place to live. And yeah. so, yeah, like in this moment, it's like pretty frustrating. It's also really weird how like some of the essential services are still have like still been construction. So like yeah. you see the condos that are like, we all know like there are many condos that are empty right now, still being built. And then like no affordable housing um, and no free housing for the homeless right now. So that's, that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. But I think about like testing the, I guess there's like a shortage of that reagent that mm -hmm. is like allows people to like, you like get the test from the swabs. Yeah. Um, and that's like a global shortage. And so as far as I've understood it, there are like a few universities. There's one in Winnipeg that's like trying to, manufacture more of that in order to up the testing but for a while i was like why isn't anyone being tested and like you know you look at places like south korea where people can just go around and get tested all the time and that's been like key to them not having like a, a mm -hmm. terrible spread and okay so sorry for going off about the health system but one thing that uh like an analysis that i read um by a doctor forget his name but he was talking about how the healthcare system has been drastically cut over the past 20 years, which is, you know, since the 2000s, the late 90s, the liberal government and the conservative government have cut the amount of hospital beds per, like every, like per capita, I guess. So we used to have like in 97, something like for every 100 people, five hospital beds, and now there are two. Maybe that's the wrong statistic, actually. But anyways, it was something like this. Yeah, no, I understand. Your, your point is that uh, people have sort of diminished the amount of people that can be cared for all at once, which you yeah, know, like can, Canadians know about through waiting if we go to the ICU or not the ICU, the emergency room. And, yeah. Um, you know. And I'm so lucky to have benefited from universal healthcare here. But uh, Americans are mad at us right now. Because, yeah. I mean, they're not mad at us, but... Jealous. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Sorry, I interrupted. But, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, that 
it's not the people I'm feeling the most for right now are the U.S. I, I mean, it's everyone in the world. It's it's Spain, France, you know, uh, South Korea, China, like like Africa. You know, these this stuff is popping up everywhere. But uh, yeah, the thing about the U.S. is that because of all of the fighting that's been happening for, you know, this this type of thing. And, and in a way, some of the ideas would be better than what's been executed in, in Canada, you know, and in, in, in other ways, I'm sure that they would fall short. This is just governments, you know, but but um, and seeing that proven by a disaster and sort of thinking, oh, my God, like what's going to happen to my friends? Like nobody has health care. They're sort of saying COVID's going to be covered. COVID testing will be covered. COVID treatment will be covered. But if that's the case, like they're still going to go have this economic depression, you know, like they're going, it'll be such a financial strain, you know, and, and, and then, uh, because people won't be working and, and, you know, so they might as well just shut, shut, shut the, shut the fridge door, put a padlock on the fridge door. Fridge door is called the economy. You open it up. Great metaphor. Thank you. You've got a lot of mustard in there. It hasn't gone bad. Yeah. Mustard, mustard dinners. You don't even need to refrigerate an egg is the truth and that's the bigger deal which is that the economy is like a made-up story and that's what's becoming apparent and i think like that is the psychotic part about the the moment like people are freaking about out about possibly contracted covid covid19 and like like currently like we're like the stock market has seen like a like crazy crazy drop further than like the great depression no when you're watching the news and you see all those names of stocks and they're all going down and then you see zoom and it goes like up a million (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's wild because even the idea that like once the pandemic is over then like people are going to be fine is kind of just bullshit because the entire economy is is totaled and like yeah the kind of stimulus packages and like loans like like billions and billions of dollars being injected into the stock market in order for it to, to like not crash and then it crashing anyways it's like couldn't that money have just gone to feeding people and like well yeah health goods, and good goods and health i mean and like the reagent for the tests like all yeah. of those things and and like maybe that sounds like a really simplified understanding of the economy but like isn't that just the case in this moment where we're recognizing that we're like all interdependent and like, I don't know, but whatever. We're not, we're not recognizing that fully. I mean, I feel like Canadians, uh, like I'm shocked in Toronto. Yes, people are out sometimes and, you know, uh, and but I feel like we are doing okay in Toronto. Like you can feel the tenseness for each other's health. You can feel like on some level when you go out, you can like being here in Parkdale, which is, you know, like so many areas in in Toronto, a mixed income community, you know, and that's another thing that you mentioned about your old Toronto and and my old Toronto is like, it was really mixed income, you know, like, and and it was especially, where did you, uh, did you go up downtown? I grew up in like Blue West Village. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. That's even why. that. Did you, even, did you go to school near? Did you go to Humberside? I can't. Yeah. Remember. 
Yeah. yeah. So we went to the same high school. But I was just like younger than you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Of course. I remember. And, uh, but <laughs> you're, well, you're a few years younger than me. Yeah. Like, I so think when I was coming in, when I was leaving, you were coming in, but yeah. you, but we were there for the same one year. And I yeah. wasn't one of these creepy older guys who was trying to date the grade nines. I think that's gross. Or having secret sex with them. Is that different than dating when you're in high school? <laughs> I think it is because like the one is like this like kind of public uh, performance of like possessing a, a 13 year old. And the mm. other one is like a private use. Yeah. If people, if there's a 13 year old listening to this right now, it's like, uh, don't worry about sex for a while. It's overrated to have it early. You're basically or, molesting yourself or ever. <laughs> also like, I actually do want to say this is maybe more pertinent to like 18, 19, 20, 20 men that are 17 to 30, um, which is that the human brain develops um, as a child until the age of like around 21 to 25. And so you can really traumatize someone mm -hmm. by doing what seems like performing like a regular heteronormative like dating script mm -hmm. with them when they're young because like they're just kids and like just because a 13 year old like woman or feminized person is like very uh precocious doesn't mean that you can do it with them because it doesn't make them any different than most 13 year old women or like girls you know, because like just people are are smart in general. And we have like a dominant culture that would like project this notion that young women are generally stupid. And so the exceptions are the ones who are particularly smart. But that's just not the case. So it doesn't yeah. make them fair game. But uh, what about Sable Starr, who had sex with uh, David Bowie, uh, you know, and uh, Laurie Maddox uh, when they were uh, teens? And then... Uh, you know, Iggy Pop in 1996 had a song on that album that had, uh, I think it was the album that had Wild America on it. Wow. Remember that tune? No, I don't. Oh, it's a hot track. <laughs> but, Are you going to uh, play it? Uh, uh, maybe I'll ask our producer to uh, uh, put it on under this. But he had another song on that record. It was like, uh, that I, fucked, I had sex with Sable when she was just 13. You know, and it's just, um uh so crazy to think of um i'll put it this way all that shit happened it sucked mm -hmm. it was at least out in the open like that's what's so interesting culturally is even now when you go back to pro tv from like 15 20 years ago you're seeing shit that like looks feels weird sometimes now like you go oh well we wouldn't do that and when people you know like all these people like mel brooks going the producers wouldn't fly now and it's like no mostly because you had that weird drag king drag like the the gay director character it's not even about hitler yeah. man yeah. like blazing saddles still flies kind of you know because it's just so insane and it's like richard Pryor wrote that shit you know so it has this uh and and you know, I think especially in 1970, Jewish people and, uh, you know, black people had both a lot of 
uh, anger, baggage, humor to unload, you know? Yeah. And, and um, uh, but, but yeah, uh, you know, we've been watching Rock of Love. Uh, I haven't seen that. You know that show, it was a reality show. First we watched Flavor of Love with Flava Flav. Wow. And like these were early 2000s, like 2005 VH1 shows that were basically detailing these ridiculous people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Flavor Flav being one and Brett Michaels of Poison being the other. And it's just them, you know, dating, trying to find love. And it's like, especially the Brett Michaels one is just like, they're all strippers. They're all ridiculous. Um, but they're all very human. That's the other weird thing about this fucking trashy reality show is it's not like the ones now where it's very like, uh, kind of tidy and you feel like people are, people's personalities are defined just when they introduce each other and then they meet and you're like, Oh, they're nice. It's like, these are people who are unpredictable. They're just very human. So, but you see stuff and the way people are portrayed that is just, uh, like it's more open than now. And I actually like it in a weird way. Like I I prefer it. And, and that's because I think that what you're talking about is all stuff that, that still happens. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm not speaking as a man here. I am regurgitating the words of, uh, someone who is, uh, uh, I'm not regurgitating is such a gross word. I'm regurgitating. It's like a a mother bird. One of the symptoms of COVID-19 is regurgitating. (laughs) But um, uh, it's, it's the idea of agency, female agency. And I think that there is, from what I can see, and also just teenage agency, let's be real. Like, you know, um, there, there is this sort of conflict between, you know, the idea of someone who's, not 13 real, you know, but, but once we get older as teens, having this kind of realizing there's, we have free choice, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then thinking we're taking advantage of it. And, you know, nine times out of 10, just winding up more confused, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but so that, that's the one, that's the one kind of, because, and this is not to, um, defend that David Bowie situation, but at all, because it's gross, but it's like, especially in that era of rock, you know, there was, maybe it's because there were less entry points for women into that world. You know, Mm -hmm. the way that, whether it was Laurie Maddox or uh, Pamela DeBars or, or, um, you know, Sable Star, who I guess is well known, Miss Christine, these people became, you know, um, famous. Mm-hmm. for uh, almost being like these weird, like mother, follower, lover kind of groupies, characters. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. groupies. But it was, it, and then you had a group like the GTOs, right? Do you know the GTOs? No. They were called Girls Together Outrageously. And wow. it was, I think they were actually assembled by Frank Zappa. And the whole idea is they were a band of these groupies. We had a record of theirs at my house growing up. Is it and good? I don't remember what it sounded like as well. You could find it on YouTube. We should we should like actually yeah, put play that. it now. Yeah, yeah play it. And uh, and um, so it actually was a means of not just becoming famous, but having like uh, some sort of position in in this world of rock. So I wonder when when these women go that I was happy I did it. If it's actually more about like the greater whole of what that meant 
you know, rather than I'm, that was great sex and we had a cool relationship after that, you know, I don't know. I think like you, you can't really know these things, but I, but in a, a strange way, um, I think they have to look at like the broader context, right? And like how people search for freedom and for status, given what they might like generally be relegated to. So mm -hmm. like even just like, I think you're right, right? Like there was no entry point into rock, but not just rock, like in society. Yeah. I mean, it is the, the greater thing. And now I'm going to make it. And by the way, it's like now I think the argument we're making here is that it's like COVID-19, you know, don't, don't do it just in case, you know, <laughs> very, the sadness is very contagious. So don't try, you know, like, you, you mean like, sick. you mean like if we're trying to don't talk date to younger talk people, to the right. Don't date younger people. Or, yeah. or don't date, you know, fucking teen teenagers when you're, you know, you've got that An gray, gray beard. But not even just the gray beard. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and like, women too. I, yeah, totally. I, I mean, okay, so this is like this one piece of information that I learned like too late in my life, but that I've wanted to share with people. I already kind of said it, but I learned it in this class about childhood trauma and how childhood trauma affects brain development. And I was like in it being like, oh, like, yeah, like what? Like like what's a child like is it like under 13 yeah. and then like the teacher was like no it's under 25 in terms of how a brain develops right so, so. this is very interesting because the impact like that like uh like say like i was like 15 dating like a 20 year old right and it like seemed that, normal it seemed normal because like he was still living with his parents or whatever, but like, <laughs> you know. He was smooth as a baby's body. And <laughs> he was dating a baby's body. <laughs> exactly. But like, <laughs> ultimately, when you think about it, it's like, there's just like this formative mind. And like, definitely like it took until I was a lot older to be like, oh, there are like dynamics that were set forth in that relationship that like affected me as much as like, what you know someone would think like your relationship to your parents might right like, impact you, you know? well i mean if we start patterns or you know early in our lives you know that's uh i mean depending on what they are you know it's uh yeah it, it, it can be very hard to to process and i mean life can feel long i mean right now we're isolated so i'm almost thankful there's stuff i gotta process <laughs> <I've> got <laughs> something to do are you doing skype therapy no, I don't. Um, I, I was seeing a therapist uh, when I first came back from Toronto. And, I and you know, I've seen a lot of uh, therapists since the age of um, 30 or so. But, uh, you know, I, I was very expensive. So eventually it just had to end. But I really, really was helped by my therapist, mostly because she recommended things that I could do um, on my own like she just was like here's a book you should read for ADHD yeah. and I did and it was like mind-blowing and that 
sort of sent me down a path of like groups. Like right now I have the option to go into all of these different ADHD groups. And I also just had a Zoom with like these two people and we do like our own sort of private thing. So the support group world, which is, I think a lot of people view as uncool or too, um, I don't extra, like, you know, t you're too visible or something, you know, to you don't know these people and you're sharing about yourself. Uh, I've really gotten a lot out of it. Um, and, you know, there is the catharsis of relating, but there's also just straight up resources, you know, and, and, and things like that. So that's been good to have that, but I do wish I still had uh, therapy. So, I mean, if you want to do kind of sort of a, therapy be the therapist after this for a second hour i will give you um, two thousand dollars a month you can have my entire stipend oh, wow thank you that's perfect <laughs> i'm pretty much paying that amount of money to my therapist in this moment well here's yeah it's if you have like any kind of deep problem you know and you don't have the luck of a sliding scare uh, a scare uh, a sliding therapist a scale therapist who is somewhat specialized in that you need to be paying more and half the time the people who you don't need to but you very likely will be forced to yeah. want therapy and uh, my ins i didn't have any insurance last year so it was all po out of pocket but yeah. This year, luckily, I have a tiny little bit of insurance. I had like you know? a, a psychiatrist for like 10 years who was free because of the public system. And she yeah. was like actually particularly like radical and that she did like collaborative care. So rather than just like prescribing me drugs, she did talk therapy. Guy yeah. refused to go on like a medication when I was quite young and she was like well then you've got to do talk therapy and I was like okay yeah so then I I did that for 10 years and it was amazing to have someone who had this like long view of my life and could like reflect back at me like other times when I felt similarly or like you know because you can forget but um then she left and so then I just like went a year without any kind of counseling and man did my life just get out of whack i mean this is why i've learned late in the game that it's like not one thing that helps like right now i'm medicated and it fucking rules um in a lot of ways you know um and in that coming home from living in los angeles and fighting uh feelings of failure and realizing how deep self-esteem stuff went you know, in terms of being a bit of an impediment for me, plus then trying to parse out uh, ADHD <clears throat> symptoms, um, symptoms from co comorbidities of that, um, and realizing, although you have to take responsibility, that there's a lot of things to that I'm more susceptible to for whatever reason. Um, was huge. And so like exercise, meditation, met for meds, you know, t therapy, like my suggestion would be, you know, um, do a few of those, you know, all at once if you can, yeah. because, yeah, totally. you know, medication won't solve anything. It'll just stop you from spiraling potent if it's properly administered and, yeah. and if it's the right dose, but, but, you know, something like learning how to prioritize, learning how to 
survive day to day. And what sucks is I'm feeling like I'm getting a sense of that just being stuck in this, you know, situation mm. right now. Like I feel like I'm forced to like be present because there's like only this moment and it's just repeating over and over again. <laughs> you know, yeah. how long have you been self-isolated? Um, like really like I, so I would say totally for seven days. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, before that I was like seeing people who live in the same house as me, like below. And I was seeing like my friends would come by and like we'd keep a social distance or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's weird. It's a hard, uh, it's a hard thing to know when you're like, my symptom is so mild. Uh huh. What so, are they? It's just like coughing and I'm tired a lot. Mm. But like uh, some of the, so I like went on the health Canada site and then you like say what your symptoms are and to see if you can get a test and they're like, Nope, but just don't see anyone. So like yeah. if you, you might have it. And then I was reading all these like firsthand accounts of like, what's it like? And yeah, I've been a lot reading of the those. mild cases are just like this, you know? Yeah. But, and, and the truth is like, you're doing the right thing. I, I, I think by not testing because of, just what we're trying to avoid here. And there, you know, not to get back to, you know, COVID facts or whatever, what we're trying to avoid is overloading the health system. Mm -hmm. And if you are having mild uh, things and you're alone or you're self-isolating, it's like, just work through it because, it, you know, unless you feel like you're in danger because you don't want to be Idris Elba, you know, yeah. he's, he's getting raked over the coals now because people don't even believe it is disgusting in the U.S. You know, my friend. Was Did you hear about Jackson Brown? Did he pass on? No, he has it though. Yeah, Prince. And you know, I mean, Terrence McNally died the other day and he was a major uh, playwright and musical uh, writer, you know, like, yeah. he, and he was essentially, you know, he wrote Lips Together, Teeth Apart and uh, Love, Valor, Compassion, Ragtime, you know, and uh, it's, there's no, there's no hierarchy of people who died, but you know, my theory is that if, you know, well-known people are died, dying, even if uh, theoretically they travel a lot and they're high risk, it's like, think of the amount of people that are also going through this, you know, yeah, I mean, totally. you know, because the comfortable and the rich who are very often filthy people with no regard for hygiene. Um, <laughs> 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 well like yeah they're used uh, to being washed not washing themselves yes yes <laughs> but, that's it yeah but um <laughs> government wash me <laughs> no government will wash us all but um uh you know that's one of the things that i think it's just trying to you're trying to get into people's heads is like it's not even that you might get someone sick. It's that if enough people get sick, we're screwed, you know? Yeah. And, and then on top, all at once, you know? And then also when people, the, the dumbest one now is this thing where it's like, well, the flu kills way more people every year. And it's like, yeah, and there's a new flu and it's going to kill the same <laughs> amount of people <laughs> at least. So yeah. Why are why are you acting like it's not a big deal? <laughs> you know, it's like I know. I had like a contractor in my apartment who was like doing the washroom. Like my my washroom renovation took from like 
December 15th until March uh, or until February mm-hmm. 15th. I think it was like really wild. Um, but the guy was in here doing the plumbing like later on and he was just like, it's bullshit. Like everyone's just like saying like making it too big of a deal. And I was like, I don't know, man, like you got to check your sources. Like, yeah. Why, like, why wouldn't you just err on the side of conscious? Of, of, of like, conscience. What is it? Yeah. Of both. Yeah. yeah. And caution. But you kind of wonder, like, why? Like, I guess it started to make me think about how people don't trust any information that yeah. we read anymore and how there are like modes of then dealing with that distrust, right? And the modes, like, are not critical thought for the most part. They're like, either like a naive pessimism or a naive optimism or listening to anonymous people uh you know relatively people you don't know give a range of opinions many of which are anecdotal like i saw on one of these facebook groups about uh covid and this person was like i'm gonna order food is that i want to order a pizza is that okay and everyone's like no yes no yes and it's like just link to a trustworthy voice, you know, that is like giving you the real deal, you know, and give a few of those, maybe show like ones and then you can read them and then you can figure out which information sound, you know, use your trust there. But when you're talking, this is what's killed the internet in a lot of ways is, and again, it's kind of a contradiction because it's like, on the one hand, there's real information that gets out that's Mm -hmm. like would not get out otherwise, you know, just by somebody spreading it like Pizzagate and um uh but some level of that you know is yeah. true <laughs> and yeah, totally and uh and and then the other side is just people being yeah. like aha I tricked you into believing eugenics aha I tricked you into believing you know that the free market will solve uh COVID-19 like it's just um you know just just so insane but you're also what? a musician. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, is when I wanted to talk to you on the podcast, this is what I said at the beginning, like, this is the kind of stuff I want to have. It's just like, uh, this is like the kind of conversation we'd have if we were at that place uh, when I was growing up, um, the green room. You know, uh, did you ever go to the green room? <laughs> of course you did. Oh, yeah, man. Yo, don't go there. I heard <laughs> I heard the they spit in the pad thai. Right? <laughs> yeah. What was like there's so many rats there and there's like the yeah. cuz you could underage drink there. That's why we went, right? Well, I actually would go to this Polish place that closed um uh that was just down the street from the Brunswick House, which is another classic Toronto spot. Oh yeah, the Brunny. And uh, now the Rexall. <laughs> now the now the drugstore, but it was a drugstore back then too. Um, but but yeah, uh, uh, the the blue the blue cellar room. It was a Polish or Hungarian restaurant. I think it was Hungarian actually. And they wouldn't serve you in the front restaurant part, but if you went into the back part, they would serve you these mugs mm-hmm. of beer for two dollars without carding. And there was a. Uh, jukebox that had mostly polish or hungarian songs but also like shaking all over by the guess who <laughs> and you know i can see for miles like every once in a while it'd be a song that as a teenager you could listen to a million times you know um yeah yeah 
but no, the green room, we didn't, I didn't, I just went to cause it was like a coffee shop that where the people who worked there were nice young people like, like who I liked. And, uh, I could talk to a range of people who were like idiots or nice, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. I mean, and it was right by my house, you know? So it, it was like a cool spot because they also had candles Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had candles. Remember they had candles? Yeah, because yeah. it was dark because you would see the mice and the yeah. cockroaches otherwise. Yeah, it was like, but it was like that kind of place that doesn't really exist anymore. Like that Toronto decor that was just like latex <laughs> paint upon latex paint trying to like, rather than wash the walls, let's just paint over and like no yeah. right angle in any corner because yeah. the paint is so thickly painted there right like just like just so disgusting like everything but also then like people would be compelled to put up art on the walls right i mean you should write about toronto you are you should write about toronto you say when you start writing it because i feel like you could bring something um that just there is like you really (laughs) basement uh bathrooms in the basement that were all that were still there from the previous uh, property it was that then um, that then like for generations are just never improved. <laughs> so you'll yeah, be totally. fancy $500 dinner place and then you'll go downstairs and like, it's just like a small dirty bathroom, you know, a dang with a dice. With like, <laughs> it's too much. Like, I really miss, remember that place like Grapefruit Moon? Of course. Or like. I live like. Yeah. Like all from there. Yeah. Now it got taken over by like a relative of the original owner. So it's like, I think all swanked up, but. A little bit. Yeah. Just like kind of, I like all the, the old shitty places that now can no longer be. Um, What was your first job in Toronto? Uh, my first job was I was um, selling ice cream at uh, Harborfront down by the lake with my sister worked there. I met a lot of uh, friends there, you know, especially my friend Mio. Um, you know, she worked there very, uh, and, and we were friends. But I, but it, yeah, selling ice cream there. What was your first job? Well, okay, my first real job. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, my my first job was like I had a piano teacher who lived in Kensington Market and she had a boyfriend who like would rescue the green ear, or the red-eared turtles from the Grenadier Pond because like people would buy those, you know, really cute little turtles and then they grow and they're like terribly big reptiles and like people were like, fuck. And so they just <laughs> dump them in the lake or Grenadier Pond. So he would yeah. like go take them because they're like not endemic to that place and uh put them in pools in her basement and then they would pay me to go to chinatown and buy like dehydrated the like shrimp and like feed it to the turtles Hmm. so that was like my first like gig because we're like that would be considered a job now (laughs) but economy um, yeah so that was when i was like 12 but my first like restaurant job was at uh, this deli that's still there at uh, Keel and Bloor called the Lunchbox. And wow, I know that. I, would make I didn't realize that yeah. it's been around for so long. That place. Yeah, they changed the sign. Yeah, that place is good. Yeah. 
I like it. I'm sure that you yeah, working I mean, there I, made you think uh, <laughs> the highest of it. Um, it I, I got poached out of there to go work at Easy Restaurant. And that's I where I started. Yeah. Because I would like write, uh, I would like, like just amuse myself by making like mayonnaise art on the <laughs> people's sandwiches. <laughs> and then like this guy came in and later on I saw him at a party um, and I was like, what? And he was like, I remember you from that restaurant and I was like cool man and he's like yeah I was like I just spend my time writing eat shit with the mayonnaise on everyone's <laughs> sandwich and then he was like oh do you want to come work at my restaurant and I was like uh and then he came back in and he gave me his card and he was his name's Pete Morrison he worked at easy restaurant or he owned easy restaurant so I worked there for years but. that's awesome and that's where I met Chad Ross yeah Chad Ross great musician yeah. Uh, great guy. You know, he's in Comet Control with Andrew, our uh, mutual buddy, as uh, as uh, linked yeah. by uh, his sister, Alyssa, who's an old friend of yours. I heard that you and Alyssa used to have business cards. Yeah, we used to have actually a band called Slick McCoy. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. And so the the business card was part of that. But like, I think the our, our advertising campaign, actually like much like the days of Instagram, our advertising campaign preceded our music making. Um, and so we had these cards that were like, Slicky McCoy, we don't really give a fuck about you, available mm -hmm. for European handball talking shit. <laughs> like it was just like- This sounds very familiar to me. Season. Yeah. When do you so, think we met? I think in high school. Yeah, yeah, I think in high school, but it probably I, would have been also right after high school because of Alyssa and our friend Kat, you know, like who I was still hanging out with. And then, yeah, like, when did you start going to shows and stuff? Like, this is kind of what I was wondering, you know, like just from high school, right. you know, into, yeah. into music. Like, tr the Toronto music scene is so interestingly cascading from years back you know like the yeah. people a lot of the people in your band now are people you've worked with for a, a very long time and then yeah. your old band 100 dollars was you know wow. also that but fiverr forget solo. i was in that band yeah well fiverr just like work with different musicians and i arrange the music to mm -hmm. my taste with like great ensembles so like yeah i mean every album is different Right now I'm working with actually some musicians from out east who I call the Atlantic School Spontaneous Composition. They're yeah, that stuff sounds great. Um, that like song that you released, I, I, I love it. It's great. It's really funny like to play with them because they're improvisational players and they have like really beautiful ways of listening and being responsive and they have absolutely like no stop licks. So it's like, I'm never dealing with like someone playing in a way that they think is how like they're supposed to play. They're always being totally responsive. And for that reason, I really enjoy playing with them mm -hmm. um, because it feels like expansive. So we actually have like a full length that we were supposed to put out in like Jan like next January. Yeah. But now I'm like, let's just release it now because maybe capitalism will collapse and so will the entire music industry. And then we can just like share the music and like, I don't know, like I'll start working on a Green New Deal to like rehabilitate society. 
I don't know. I mean, I kind of don't give a shit about like having that like broader ambition of thriving as like a musician in the industry as it is, which has always been like to my own detriment. I just can't feel ambitious beyond the making of the music. But do you feel um, the road is a healthy place for you? Because I know it's it's a very I mean you were talking about that like that feeling of um, you know being in a different place every day and when I've toured oh I've loved it but when I was doing the house hopping um, it's not even when I was doing the house hopping I realized like when I came back from this whole thing that like change is actually very hard for me so being oh. on a tour without realizing it was actually pretty intense every day and i think that that's not an irregular thing if you notice how bands are and how we cope don't even it's also the fact that we get paid very often you know a pretty finite amount of money so the idea that you're getting free drinks it's really just pay you know well and and, yeah. yeah okay so i don't think that the way that the music industry is set up for bands to tour is anything other than exploitative and I think so that's like a hard part of it um and so I've always tried to like figure out ways around that and not always been successful um sometimes I have um done well and and just generally like if I tour solo I I make a lot of money and but trying to support a whole band and make sure everyone gets paid is virtually impossible was up and <laughs> i think like um for me like i don't think it has to be that way and i think that when i look at the standards around like openers making very little money like yeah. standard of like 250 dollars a show to open a show in like a huge venue where you know that like the person who you're opening for is pulling thousands of dollars. I mean, that um, happens with watching, Van Halen or something, you know, the yeah. opener sometimes, especially if they're local, you know. You know totally. And the, the hierarchy, you know, so bands get like put in this like kind of hierarchy that makes them like inherently kind of hazing each other, right? Like you're getting hazed by the person that you're like opening for they feel guilty no one's talking about the money but then ultimately it's the administrators that are making the money off of it like the way in which there are so many gatekeepers now which is like a lot different than when i started playing in bands but when i started playing in bands like 2008 2007 like i could book my own tours no problem and get into Mm -hmm. good rooms or whatever now we had that too without a booking agent, you're pretty much like relegated to this whole underclass of bands. You can't then also do like get festivals. And then there are, of course, all of these like massive, like real world um, other dynamics that are affecting like local subcultures, like really the real estate market, like the fact that so many great venues don't exist for um, like independent culture and subcultures to thrive. So it it becomes like all whack. But what I would say is like, I don't think that the road is inherently bad for people as long as you can like really self-possess and get into like a good routing so you're not driving too far every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can like exercise and just don't drink every night. Like 
Yeah, it's true. Like yeah. regular life, like don't drink yeah. every night. I think that's why comedy is very appealing or my other band Wrong Hole is, you know, two to three people because it's just the control is there, you know? And when right. you have five people, it's like, okay, well, the dynamic takes you to these little uh, groups, you know? And so maybe one of them is is chilling, reading, you know, and sitting in the back of the van, just like bag of Cheetos, candle lit, um, <laughs> Game Boy music. Well, do you know that like I have both a Game Boy and a candle that I'm holding up? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one thing before, I, I prepared for self-isolation so hard because I bought, uh, without knowing it, I was like stockpiling video games and video game systems. So I've got like seven video game systems at home. And <laughs> many games and I have, so I have nice. a DS as wow. well. Yeah. Wow. So, so uh, I mean, most of that is not where I am now, but it's almost just comforting to know those are over there. And yeah. like month five, you can really break them out. Yeah. Month five. I can't wait. Okay. Yeah. But wait, so when, you were once, talking about the two camps in the band. There's like, yeah, well, and, and then the other ones are like kind of spurring each other to drink or smoke cigs or, and all of that, by the way, is not, inherently immoral you know it's or, or or trouble even you know but you know um then but if you're doing it like every night it's just like there's no opportunity for rest in a weird way you know like exactly. you're doing this different thing where sleeping is recovery instead of rest and you're already getting that out of the performance itself most of the time which is yeah. exhausting you yeah. know so um, definitely I haven't gone on the road in a really long time. The last time was like four shows in 2015 or something, or maybe 2016, I did a few and, and, uh, it's, uh, definitely something that I would approach very differently now. Like I just kind of yeah. want to go on a tour with like, you know, I wish my girlfriend would like do some sort of a performance so that we could just like drive together <laughs> and just do shows. <laughs> totally. But I mean, like so the last tour that i did like the last fiber record was like a real like a like a full-on fucking nerd project mm -hmm. where it was like a i went into the archives of the like this institution called the rockwood asylum for the criminally insane and like mm -hmm. like did a deep dive the like institution had never been written about um and at length and so like I had to get into the case files of all these people who had lived there to try to figure out what their lives were like. And then I wrote like a song cycle from the different perspectives of different patients there. And then like, it was accompanied by this like nerdy book that was written by a fictional ethnomusicologist. That's like, was just kind of riffing on the uh, Smithsonian folkways, like practice of doing field recordings yeah, um, and issuing like these like long, like liner notes that are boring as fuck so anyways i did that show that show like is a hour-long show if it's if it's given enough time and it's like storytelling and singing um and like i'm dealing with people who are dead and people who have suffered and trying to like talk about systems of like mental health systems and like settler colonialism and like how the inception of like early prisons in Canada, like really formed what Canada as like a state is. Oh, that's why and we feel imprisoned. 
all the time? <laughs> in a way, yeah. I mean, like a weird fact I learned when I was doing that was that in order for a district to be called a district, it, it wasn't like the schoolhouse or like the church or any of these things that like made it a district. It was a, a jail. Yeah. You had to have a jail. So That's like that was like the first institution in every district was a jail. Um, yeah. Wow. That's a lot of, that's common that the basis for things is some sort of law and order control, you know, yeah, like, totally. yeah. So anyways, doing that show was like really particular because I would just be booking weird places like bars or libraries or uh, like stores, like really strange shit. Um, and I would get you know, anywhere from like 20 to 500 people a night. And I would be like, well, I can't open for anyone. Like, <laughs> you don't want me opening for you. With this, this is like, show, yeah. Yeah, like it's the worst. It's the <laughs> absolute worst. I tried it with like Bri Webb and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. Because it's like, you just get everyone like, like crying and feeling like all messed right. up about like their it, secret institutionalized cousin right. you know you're, tr you're almost <laughs> trying to your your whole point is to like grip their thoughts so that it's directed towards this interesting and sad or or fascinating piece of history that is food for thought and then like someone else comes up and is like hey everyone uh so i have some things too yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, it's so rude. Uh, it's you're either mad at the first person for bumming me out and now mad at me for touring <laughs> with this person or, you know, you're just drained in a good yeah. way. You know, no, but like for real, it's really not the good shit for a, for a show. So I would do it solo. So then I would walk with a lot of money yeah. because like it would just be one person is going to. Yeah. And so I found like also... So touring that show on my own was a little difficult in that I would feel like tired. And a lot of touring, I find the hard part is the social aspect where you're like kind of tending to the people around you. So unless you're making like enough money to pay for your gas and get a hotel room, like often solo, I'm just like visiting friends mm -hmm. and I like stay with my weird, cool friends and like mm -hmm. Duncan or like wherever cool places. And, but then you also have to like be a full person and like entertain and be grateful. And well, yeah. so just that, I think that got really tiring. The last yeah, my time. friend was talking about that. Uh, I have a friend uh, and he was like, we went on tour together as comedians and he was just like, I don't stay at friends' houses anymore. I can't do it. Cause you wind up going over and you feel like you got to buy them dinner or lunch or something for their goodwill. So that's money. And then, you hang out with them and you know, you, you wind up staying up late cause you're catching up <laughs> and yeah. then you wake up and maybe you get them breakfast. So it winds up costing close to a hotel room in a secondary market, as they say. And you know, it's, I think that that was something he got to after periods of doing that a lot, you know, because yeah. he, he was like a tour manager and a lot of things, but I totally get that. And again, I think these are almost transitional moments uh as a musician keeps touring keeps aging you know you're just like i just want to rest right now so yeah, take because me it is your work because it's yeah. like an actual job to me I, i'm like not i'm an extrovert in some ways but i'm not like a pure extrovert so i don't yeah. like love that about drive you. that's called a toronto <laughs> that's called the toronto way <laughs> Yeah. That's, lots of people, us born here are totally like that. Right? Yeah. 
you and I could just like chat for a fucking billion years in like a pretty open extroverted manner. And then it's like, but if, you know, one of us messages each other at a weird time, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's actually like a really good description of it. <laughs> like open, close, open, close. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I, I think we should probably, you know, uh, go to worry alone soon, but, uh, I just wanted you to ask you if, if you could just for a second, tell me about, you know, your, your different band projects and, uh, you know, what they're like, if, if you, if I know describing can be hard, but you don't even need to, you can just say what's out on them or, you know, what to expect. Like drills and chills and spills. You know what? Like highest order hasn't been playing. The highest order is like a band that I'm in with Simone to barrel also known as Simone TV, Great Paul drummer. Mortimer. Yeah. Paul Mortimer, beautiful yeah. adult babysitter. Yeah. He, he does take care of a lot of adults. Well, he's such a sweetie, you know. Yeah. One of the great uh, musicians in the city for sure. And, Truly. And great guy. Yeah. And uh, Kyle Connolly, who now plays in a band called Orville Peck. Oh, um, wow. I mean, by wow, I mean, you know, they're killing it. He's killing it. Um, and so it's like Kyle's on tour. So like all the time. And so we haven't been playing, but we also kind of, were just like, you know, as like a group of people like love playing together, but sometimes you gotta like take a break. Absolutely. So we haven't been really playing for two years now. I've been mostly working my own project, which is called Fiverr. Yeah. And it's like, just a place where I can produce music. So I write songs or whatever, choose songs, and then I produce them with different musicians. So that weird album I was talking about, I produced with like the, the like great musicians in Lonesome Ace String Band. And they were like bluegrass players that I came up watching at the Silver Dollar when I was underage like always going on Wednesday nights to watch this band called Crazy String. So Chris Cool, mm-hmm. Max Heineman, John Showman, great Toronto musicians who um, are all of the, you know, 10 to 15 years older than me, really incredible teachers of like that old time tradition. So I worked with them for that last one. And then like for the forthcoming music, it's all these great improvisers, really cool. Um, there's this like, guy Jeremy Costello who's a bass player and a singer uh, but also plays synth and he has a great album you might like Nick it's called Stoner Mm -hmm. Nights Volume 2 and I like um, the title and he does generation title always open for the new generation titles yeah totally and uh, (laughs) and uh, he's also in a band with another player uh, Nick Dorado and they're like a they're like an one of the most inspiring musicians I've ever met, like a beautiful sax player, like dedicated piano player, has taught me so much about jazz and taught me so much about like uh, listening and deep listening and improvisation. And um, they have a plan, a band called like Booty Band, but also they play in a band called Aquaculture, which is like uh, mostly based out 
out east. Um, really, really beautiful music. People should check that out. And then uh, Bianca Palmer's the drummer in that unit, and she is from La, like she she's living in La Haven, Nova Scotia, but she comes out here to to jam with us, uh, and she's really, really, really incredibly um, lyrical drummer. Like the way that she tunes her drums and the way that she listens is like so beautiful to play with. So I love, I love those guys so much. And I kind of shook up my life to be able to like work with them, but now we can't all see each other because of the virus. So I think I'm like, that's like, I'm not like, woe is me. I'm so fortunate compared to so many people but that is like something we're all contending in with, right? Yeah. It's like things we were working towards doing, we no longer get to do. We were going to go on tour in June. I really doubt that's going to happen yeah. now. No, this is um, very morale shaking and it's, it's, it's interrupting. You know, it's, it's unfortunate and it's very ironic that right now to get through this, people are using music, movies, television. And a lot of those people, except for the writers and or producers of this at the moment, you know, uh, like someone who's mixing an album right now and getting paid, for instance, you know, they're um, without a, uh, paying work, you know, yeah. and, and then on top of that, Spotify is such now streaming services <laughs> are going to be the main way people are listening to music. So like those royalties don't add up. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, when we're talking about a complete overhaul of everything, and sound exchange was actually working on this. The royalty thing is like, there needs to be, this is now, now we're learning how much the internet is exploiting us. And uh, by that, the streaming services, uh, because of when they started, it just wasn't, you know, they, it was like an afterthought royalties for those or, you know, because people didn't understand the platforms and now they're well understood. In fact, they're the main platforms. So the pay needs to go up. Yeah, totally. They're raking it in right now. Yeah, like the technocrats are just like swimming in it, you know, and it's too much. It's too sad. It's too much, baby. Yeah, it's just like what, like, I'm supposed to just make stuff for everyone for free, which is kind of fine. But then like, it would be cool if we were all taken care of. Exactly. Just, it's the shit doing it for free. It's just that we're forced. Like when I was in the, the band, nobody in my band thought it was the job. You know, they were just yeah. like, we work at the job and then that gives us enough money to go on the tour to make people stoked and to keep this whole ball in the air for everyone, help be part of that ball being kept in the air. Yeah. And now, and then, you know, at that time, all bands got, that was really the time where like the underground became commodified without people noticing it. How, I, I'm interested in that question because I feel like we don't always look at the mechanics of how that happened. It has to do like, with South by Southwest. Uh, <laughs> it has everything me, to do with South by Southwest. Tell me more. I just think that that was uh, like an epicenter of great bands, stoked people and publicists and label people and hype and they were intermingled and people were working so hard that you couldn't uh, not pay attention to them. And it's great that people got that platform, but uh, 
in the end, it was like all these sponsorships were one of the reasons that a lot of that music was was able to get to that heightened level. So that's kind of when I'm talking about that intersection, that's basically what I mean. That's when branding, because cool new people were working at like companies, you know, whether it was probably yeah. Scion or, you know, I mean, look, some of these shoe companies like Vans and Converse, like, look, they were very supportive and they, they remain so, you know, so it's, it's like, I'm not always mad at it, but it just is a milestone of sorts, you know, and, and, and it would be interesting to track that. I also want to track the development of Looney Tunes uh, and, and sports paraphernalia. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, but I mean, that has a lot to do with Space Jam, right? It does, it does. And when you think about that, who had the most to do with Space Jam? Michael Jordan. Magic Johnson? No, man. Mel Blanc. Fly Like an Eagle. That song. <laughs> Is that in that movie? I yeah, seen man. That. That's a theme. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm going to play your song now. And do you want to tell uh, the listeners, who are all people you know, who have probably all heard this? No, I'm just kidding. They're going to be <laughs> hearing it for the first time for sure. Wait, what song are you going to... Can I give you this, the, yeah, just the tell song me that I song. wrote? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Just okay. tell me what song you want me to play and we will play that. Because we, we made a record. It's not actually a record. It's an EP. And that anyone is paying attention to it as a record is like ridiculous. Because an EP is just a collection of songs. But the collection of songs is like a collection of country covers and then like one original. And the original is called It Is What It Is. And it's really weird, Nick, I have to tell you, because the lyrics in it are like, you know, a classic country song really like often takes a cliche and tries to like smash that cliche into sure. oblivion or like turn it on its head. So like I was kind of dealing with the idea of it is what it is as this platitude that people throw around in like the weird culture we live in where like to confront something is often considered rude. You know? So you say it is what it is. Yeah, people are like, oh, it is what it is. And you're but like, I thought yeah, the Irishman like, inverted that cliche as well. If you saw that movie, The Irishman. No. Well, one of the best uses of a phrase in it is, it is what it is. And especially the way Joe Pesci says it near the end is, it's what it is. You know, and so there's actually like a Zen, like there's a beauty to that phrase, you know, but when we're using it kind of, as a place filler or whatever you'd call it as a means of ignoring an issue or, you know, yeah. It, as a, a, as a means of deflection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of thinking about it in that way. And, but then, so the song's like, it is what it is and it's not, but also the song's kind of about uh, like a, a moment of transition. Like when someone makes a decision or a decision is made and something ceases to be so then there's like the double entendre of like it is what it is and it it actually is not right like it is no right. more it was um, yeah and it was so, what it was yeah so there's like a bunch of that shit but the last verse was it was written like 50 like five years ago and like i just arranged it with this new group because i kind of just have like a piles of songs that i write and then i like arrange them with the proper people to make records and so this song was written like a long time ago and it it says like it seemed to me that nobody is free but the few allowed to choose had better pick a good cage and i was like oh like this is like 
trying to like subvert the idea of like prison as a metaphor because everyone's always using it as a metaphor but like maybe you shouldn't really use prison as a metaphor because like actually like many of us all have more freedom than we admit you know yeah. like and it's like you shouldn't abdicate that that like freedom you should like claim it where where it is because there are things you can control there are things you can't control right claim your um, privilege but now we actually all are in <laughs> the cages of our own apartment so if we're lucky yeah the few allowed to choose you know roommates think of all these like imagine friends had been quarantined wow that's that's actually a really good premise. <laughs> I wonder if it ever is an episode, the one where they're quarantined. Do you remember the like uh, April Fool's Day that all of the comic strips intermingled? It was like in 1997. I kind of remember that. <laughs> yeah, okay, it was a really cool day. Um, Beetle Bailey like, shows up in Chubbs and Chauncey. No, it was high. <laughs> no, high and Lois was- and Foxtrot? No, Lois got went to visit Beetle Bailey because did you know that Lois is Beetle Bailey's sister? Yeah, you know what? That is really familiar to me. So I mean, not that they're brother and sister, but like that plot line specifically. Like, I, yeah, that's wild. Okay, so like, imagine right now we got to see every sitcom quarantined version. You got to see like every episode. <laughs> <laughs> like how they deal with the court. Well, you know, they have modern Seinfeld in these Twitter accounts. So you're going to see these weird pithy tweets about that. And that would be good. Probably be, yes, it will be good. Yeah. Okay. I think we. I got to go. Um, well, really fun talking to you, Nick. I hope, uh, you have, I hope you edit this down to like 10 minutes. Is that what we'll, you We'll do? see. Generally, Andy, I pass him the episode. Do you know Andy Lloyd? He's a musician. And he's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Andy does the production of my interview episodes. And oh, wow. Yeah, and he actually did the last episode, which was solo too, but because um, he has more spare time now. And uh, yeah, he tends to let it breathe a lot, but he does wow. do some editing. He recently okay. took out some ribalds re that was a bit NSFW for uh, wow. now. They're the term "not safe for work" is now null and void. Yeah, totally. It's safe, except in the fucking Loblaws. Man, there's nothing safe for anyone who works at Loblaws. <laughs> no. I think okay. grocery workers uh, and and essential, truly essential workers, because the other ones should be basically sent home with pay. But uh, the the grocery stores, drug stores, um, they really need a serious raise, you know, like a real raise, yeah. and like salaried basically, and they need to be protected at all costs. Like I was thinking about this today, fucking. They're not on a budget where they can own a car. So they're taking transit to get where no, they're going. I know. Like and, half the time. And and like, so that's such a risk. The Westons own so many retail outlets. Freshco, Shoppers, Loblaws, Fortinos, all those places owned by the Westons. Third richest family in Canada. They can afford it. They, they can, can afford buy it. everyone a car. Let's just leave it at that. Um, you're welcome back on the podcast anytime we can have a talk. I mean, everyone wants to hang out, you know, as best we can. So this has been, this has been really nice. I feel like I haven't had 
a convo like this since I, we were like walking um, one of one of those street street talks. You know? We were yeah. walking for a while. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Well, congr- take care. Congrats on the music. I hope you feel better soon. Thanks for staying inside. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Yeah. You too, Simone. Peace. And that was Simone Schmidt of Fiverr fame. I was so glad to have such a fun Zoom with Simone. I think it was my second Zoom of all time, so what a way to do it. They're amazing. Follow them on your socials. They have a band camp. Look up Fiverr band Simone Schmidt on the damn Googles, and you'll find all kinds of info, including a great article by Tom Beaton in um, Now Magazine. So enjoy yourself. Enjoy this song. It's called It's What It Is.
Flanagan Weekly Nick Flanagan Weekly